Welcome to Hispanic Marketing and Public Relations, HispanicNPR.com. This is Elena DelVal, and my guest today is Biruta Regine EDD, who is author of Iron Butterflies, Women Transforming Themselves and the World. We will discuss success for women today and her book. After earning her doctorate degree in human development at Harvard University, Baruta spent 25 years as a clinical psychologist in private practice. She now works as an executive life coach, facilitator, speaker, and author. Prior to Iron Butterflies, she co-authored The Soul at Work, Embracing Complexity Science for Business Success with her husband, science writer Roger Lewin. In Iron Butterflies, Baruta set out to place femininity and masculinity in context and explore what it means to be a successful woman today. Baruta has been a keynote speaker for organizations such as the Inter-American Development Bank and the United Way. Baruta, welcome. Good morning, Elena. Nice to be here. This is such an amazing topic because today there are so many successful women in all walks of life, or maybe almost all walks of life. You'll tell us if, uh, if there are walks of life where we need to have a stronger presence of women. What inspired you among all the many topics that you could have dedicated so much of your energy to because you spent years and you traveled a lot and you met with many women in writing this book, right? That's right. Um, well, what in, you know, when you, when you write a book, often one book leads to another. And after writing The Soul at Work, um, which the basic idea about that is that we were saying you don't look at organizations like machines. That's not an uh, accurate description because people were looking at organizations like machines. And that meant you were a kind of con- command and control kind of leader. You expected a lot of predictability. We're saying, no, organizations are complex systems, which are much more uh, nonlinear and that, uh, the, that the source of what emerges out of, uh, organ- out of uh, complex systems is the way people interact with one another. So how you interact with each other has everything to do with, um, with what kind of culture emerges, what kind of uh, innovation you have, and what kind of creativity you have in your environment. So, of course, if you have a kind of transparent, trusting uh, uh, interactions with people, uh, you're going to have a much more open, creative system um, organization. So, in retrospect, um, you know, I realized that most of the leaders we had spoken to uh, were men, and that these men were very successful uh, in their organizations. And one of the things that distinguished them was that they had embraced what what I call feminine skills, much more relational skills. So not only was it important to get to the goal, but they really paid attention to the quality of relationships within their organization. So I thought, well, what does this look like in women? Uh, what, when, what does this masculine-feminine balance look like in women leaders? And also from a complexity point of view, um, because it's an interconnected, interdependent uh, world, uh, I, I realized that women really were in a position to be leaders because all those skills uh, of relational skills, of big picture thinking, are on the average developed more in women than they are in men. And um, although I have to say, I think it, in terms of a Latina culture, I think it's developed more, say, in the Latina culture than it is in an American culture. Um, so, so 
I thought, okay, there's another reason to be interviewing uh, women to find out, you know, what that masculine feminine balance looks like in these women. And that was the only criteria I had uh, in uh, finding these women. First, I started out with business women, uh, and then it quickly spread to many different walks of life. And, the, you know, I was looking for women uh, who had this masculine feminine balance. I didn't want women, uh, which one iron butterfly coined as uh, sperms with perms, and I call them Amazon women, uh, because like the mythical Amazons who cut their breasts to be better archers and warriors, these women disconnect from their feminine side in order to be successful. Nor did I want what I called uh, shape changers, women who, who are disconnected from their masculine side, who are everybody's support system but their own. But, you know, the thing is, I don't disparage either of these. I think they're all creative adaptations to a domination-based society, which is what we have been. And, um, and you know, I've been both. So it was, I, would, I would ask people if they knew a leader that sort of embraced this kind of masculine-feminine balance. I'd read about it, um, read about how women were talking about their work, and that's how I kind of, it kind of led me to, this, to these women whom I ended up calling Iron Butterflies. You spent, if I understand correctly, several years, you traveled to eight countries, and you summarized your findings in, I don't know if there were more, but with the meetings that you had and the profiles of 50 successful women, how did you reach that number, 50, and and what was that process like? Well, it was... It just, I don't know, it just, there comes a point where you say, I've got enough material here. <laughs> I don't need to interview any more people because I was beginning to see patterns. That's what, you know, as a psychologist, I look for patterns in the way people think and behave. Um, so uh, what was your question again? I'm sorry. That's okay. How did you, what was the process like? Let's start there. What was oh, this the pro- process well, you know, I went in and I interviewed these women. Um, first of all, I have to say, you know, these were pretty prestigious women. I mean, I would write to them, telling them about the project. Uh, they didn't know me from Adam, and, and they really liked the ideas that I was presenting to them and granted me an interview. So that was pretty amazing because some of the people that said yes were Jody Williams, a Nobel Peace Prize laureate on landmines, Pat Mitchell, former CEO of PBS, uh, Barbara Kingsolver, the novelist and environmentalist, uh, uh, you know, judges, lawyers, doctors, nurses, Kim Campbell, former Prime Minister of Canada. I mean, so it was a very uh, poets, uh, dancers, as I said, it was a very wide range. And um, and on meeting them, it was very, it was always very, um, it was always like a girlfriend feeling. You know, you walk in, you just feel connected to someone, you feel like you're on the same page. And that was a pretty amazing phenomenon for me because because these women were so diverse and yet there was some common ground we shared. Uh, they were, um, they were, the interview process was, uh, I actually, my approach is to actually ask very open-ended questions because I like to have people bring their own construction of reality to the answer rather than me being specific um, and trying to pull something out of that. So um, in one way, they answered the question I never asked, which was, what does it mean to be a strong woman? Um, and, 
in speaking with them, it was it, it was just a very um, you know, just a great camaraderie spirit with them. And I have to say, one a couple of my favorite were the two Latino women that I spoke to. Uh, one was Deborah Rosada Shaw, uh, who was an entrepreneur, very successful entrepreneur, and the other was Maria Lopez, who was a former uh, the first Latina woman to be a um, Fred, uh, supreme appointed to the Superior Court in Massachusetts, which was quite prestigious. And then she ended up leaving that position and started her own TV show, Judge Maria Lopez. And now she's um, a visiting scholar at Brandeis working on her memoir. I'd like to talk a little bit about them a little later in the show, but they were, uh, they were definitely girlfriends. <laughs> Did you set out with a list of areas. I know you said that you started out looking at business women, but did you have kind of a list of areas where you wanted to have a woman that you had met with, uh, say, for example, judges or in any particular areas, or was this process sort of random as you got recommendations and identified potential candidates that said yes? Yeah, it was more of a snowball effect. It was, uh, I would I would read about, I, I, as I said, I started out in the business world, but then it, um, then I realized that the, what I was hearing really was something bigger than just business. And, uh, and then I would ask people, and, and that was, in the, and everybody seems to know an iron butterfly one way or another, which is interesting. Um, and I, I just thought I should cast a wide net for, for this topic. Because I was really basically wondering what did success mean to these women? What did leadership mean to these women? Um, and, and what did power mean to these women? What percentage would you say of the women that you approached responded positively? In other words, was this 10% of the group that you approached that was willing to talk no. to you? It was 98% that said yes. Um, Madeline Albright and Jane Fonda said no because they were um, writing their memoirs. So this is a, this is a lesson I think for uh, you know for women to remember that you know you don't be afraid to ask because you're, if they say no you're still just outside the door but there's a big possibility they may say yes. In terms of their ages. What would you say was the average age or the age range, if you rather? The age range went from mid-30s to 70s. Uh, and primarily, I'd say they were in the 40-50 uh, range, mostly. Why iron butterflies? Well, iron butterflies, um, I felt that really captured uh, my experience of these women. Uh, they had the... They had the touch of a butterfly, you know, a will of iron, but the touch of a butterfly. They were determined yet nurturing. They were strong and yet vulnerable. And, you know, and of course, um, the butterfly is a symbol of transformation. And all of these women had gone through a period of uh, personal transformation more than once oftentimes. Uh, and, you know, like the monarchs that... Uh, Monarchs that traveled 2,000 miles to their destination, which is an astounding feat of nature. These women all persevered uh, through really difficult times. They all experienced injustices. 
Um, but the brilliance about them was that they never became victims. They were actually able to transform those injustices uh, to um, new strengths. Uh, and the other thing is that the women were brutally, I, the phrase is, that I got from one of the Iron Butterflies is brutally honest. Uh, they, they really told me their stories. You know, we often hear about women's successes once they're successful. But we don't really hear about their struggles and uh, of what it took to get where they are. And then uh, for many, once they were there, to realize that that's not really where they wanted to be. So I, there was a brutal honesty. There's some really kind of, uh, you know, some hard stories to hear in this book. Uh, but I think it was came out of the generosity of their spirit uh, that they really wanted, as I wanted to, start a different conversation, to open it up. And, you know, Adrian Rich, the poet, said, you know, uh, every time a woman tells her truth, she creates space for more truths to be told. And I think that's very much the spirit of this book. And in fact, I've been going around the country giving talks and um, starting Iron Butterfly Circles as using the book as a kind of, a, um, you know, springboard for a different conversation among women and certainly among men. You know, you know, the interesting thing about this book also is that it was really been very much supported by men. Some of the grants for my traveling were supported by men. Uh, my editor is a man. My agent is a man. My publisher is a man. Um, you know, there's, they were very much, uh, they learned a lot, they said, reading my book. It actually transformed how they looked at women. Uh, so this book isn't just for uh, women. It's certainly for men because men can learn a lot from women as women have learned a lot from men. A couple of the things that you said uh, I thought was interesting. You said that they were strong, and you mentioned many of their qualities and their desire to transform themselves and how they were touching people. But you also mentioned the monarch butterflies. And if it's the butterfly that I'm thinking of, they are poisonous to the animals that eat them. Is there a parallel there? Are these women strong in the sense that they will not be stomped on, like the monarch, if you will. That's interesting. I didn't know that, Elena. <laughs> <laughs> That's the pretty orange butterfly that you're talking about, right? Yeah, they, yeah and they fly to, I just knew that they were, had a lot of stamina and were really determined because it, it would take them to, you know, they could fly 2,000 miles. But I didn't know that they were actually poisonous if someone ate them. Well, you know, that's interesting because... One of the things uh, that I, I used a lot of mythology in my book as well. Um, the book isn't just women's stories. It's really theme-based. Um, but uh, one of the stories is of Metis. And um, when I say, hey, have you heard of Metis? And most women, most people say no. And I said, well, have you heard of Zeus? And they go, oh, yeah, I've heard of Zeus. I go, well, Metis was Zeus's first wife. And the reason you don't know about Metis is that ultimately, and I'm not going to say the whole story, but... At the in the end, uh, Zeus seduced uh, Metis into becoming small, and Metis was the 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 most beautiful, most powerful, and the wisest of all the gods. Um, he managed to seduce her into becoming small, and then he swallowed her, and we never heard of her again. And 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 he ended up birthing, and she was pregnant when he swallowed her, and he ended up birthing Athena out of his head. And that metaphor of uh, a lot of times women's ideas are swallowed by men and they are never given that credit for, uh, for what was for their support or their ideas. And so, so I guess maybe they are 
uh, these iron butterflies won't let themselves be swallowed. And, and, and I suppose you could say that that maybe would be poisonous if, if someone tried to. What does it mean to be a strong woman in the context of these interviews and your book? Well, the, this was a real surprise for me because um, it wasn't something I was looking for. I didn't go into this, into analyzing the data with any hypothesis. I used grounded theory. And grounded theory really looks for patterns, and you see you, the, the theory emerges rather than, you know, being imposed. And what I discovered was that uh, the one thing that these women shared in common, regardless of all their diversity, was um, how they dealt with vulnerability in themselves and in others. And vulnerability was like one of the last words I would have ever used to associate with them. But in that sense, you have to be strong enough to be vulnerable, and these women were strong enough to be vulnerable. And I, as I went into this idea of their vulnerabilities, because because of the stories they told me, um, you know, I've discovered that vulnerability is is very is a paradox itself. It's very very powerful, because vulnerability is a key to personal transformation, how you deal with it in yourself. And it's also a key to social transformation, how you address vulnerability in the workplace uh, with other people. So these women are vulnerable. Was there, when you talk about what it means to be strong, would you say that's the main characteristic that defines strength? Yes, that they are able, they're strong enough to be vulnerable and that they are able to transform those vulnerabilities into new strengths. Now, let me just give you a story, say, of Deborah Rosada Shah, how vulnerability is a key to personal transformation. Uh, Deborah uh, is Puerto Rican. She grew up in the Bronx in a poor family, uh, would wake up at night hearing gunshots outside her bedroom window. She managed, she was very determined. Uh, and she pulled herself up by the bootstraps uh, and be- went into the business world, learned men's ways, really became an, what I say is an Amazon woman, uh, then started her own company became, and developed it into a multi-million dollar company, Umbrellas Plus. So here she is. She's living in New Jersey. She's got the fancy house and the fancy car and the fancy clothes and the fancy jewels. And she goes into a soul crisis. She says to herself, well, Deborah, is this what it's all about for you? Umbrella girl. And so here she falls into a kind of a deep depression. Um, and many of these women actually went through a period of time, a time like that of depression. I call it uh, the cocoon phase. It's a, it's a profound pause where things, everything you believed in sort of comes into question. You wonder, what, where, where am I going? And is this where I want to be? Um, it's a big, in like the cocoon, it's a very amorphous time and uh, very uncertain and, and, and very, very vulnerable. And, um, but I, I need to stress how important this is. Our culture is such a, American culture is so action oriented. We don't recognize the power of the pause. And the pause is just as important as the action because it helps us to connect to our more authentic selves, to reorient, and to find our true course in life. And so this is what happened with uh, Deborah. She honored that pause. She was you know, depressed for three or four months. The only thing she could do was listen to motivational tapes. But apparently those motivational tapes worked because she managed in the midst of that dark period to apply for uh, the Avon Entrepreneur Award, 
Enterprise Award, and she won. And so for her, the Iron Butterfly moment came when she was on that stage telling her story, where she was incorporating all the aspects of her life. She wasn't ashamed of a Bronx background anymore. She, she wasn't ashamed to uh, fully embrace the feminine woman in her, and she wasn't, and she was, uh, and she, uh, she uh, and the streetwise girl, she embraced all aspects of herself and really became and fully authentic, grounded in herself. That was, I think, a really big iron butterfly moment for her. And then she wrote the book Dream Big and went around uh, talking to uh, young women and encouraging them to dream big and was planning to start a kind of Latina network where which would link up uh, successful Latina women with younger Latina women in a kind of a mentorship so, so that they would dream big. So the interesting thing here is that, you know, she did one of my big ideas in the book too is that we're in a, a time of powerful transition in our country and in the world where we've been a domination based society for 5,000 years, which has used power over others. Uh, and that meant, you know, kind of revering a, a, a Lone Ranger style of leadership, you know, that the, the you know, really emphasizes individuality, autonomy, and independence. But that is really an unsustainable way of going about it, of unsustainable use of power in our world. As we see, it is unsustainable. We're seeing it crumble in the Middle East. We saw it in the Soviet Union. Um, but, uh, but there is something else happening, and that is that there, there's a transformation of power happening, and women are transforming that power into power over, to power with and for others, not just women. I think there are a lot of leaders that are trying to do that. And Deborah did that when she when she was successful in the business world. She was she used power over others, but she also used a lot of her feminine skills, which made business very personal and very, made her very successful. But when given the chance, she transformed the meaning of power to power with and for others. She wanted to distribute the power into the Latina community, where everybody would help one another to succeed. And that way, you know, one of the messages of my book too is uh, we uh, if you want. Collaborate to compete. So that's a so Deborah's story is a story of how she transformed herself by allowing that vulnerable space in herself. Now the other side of that is that I'm saying it's a key to social transformation vulnerability because actually vulnerability plays a huge role in creating collaborative work environments. And I'm saying the leaders of the future are going to be adept at creating collaborative work environments because that's how you're going to really be able to compete. And so, now first of all, when I use the word vulnerability, I mean, Elena, what's your reaction to that word? I, as soon as you said that, I thought intuitively that it made sense. I thought when you said strength and vulnerability that it was an absolute yes because in order to be vulnerable you have to feel sure of yourself. Right. And you have to be sure of yourself and that you know if you can enter those weak places that's going to make you stronger. Right? Absolutely. Oh, right. But you also have to be willing to take a risk. That's right. You have to take a risk. And you know but the thing is, generally speaking, people don't think of vulnerability as having any positive attributes. I mean, in our society, it's an almost, almost taboo word, you know, and this is especially true for men. I mean, 
you know, a domination based society does a great disservice to men because we don't allow them to be uh, vulnerable. They have to be invincible. They have to be the instrument. They have to be in charge. I mean, we, a domination based society, uh, fails to fully empathize with men. And it starts at a very early age. I mean, think about it. We often tell little boys they don't cry. If they if they show any signs of anything that is all feminine to them, uh, they're disparaged as, uh, you know, being a mama's boy or disparaged as running like a girl or, oh, that's so gay. <laughs> Do you know? And they're not allowed to, uh, they have, they're under tremendous pressure to uh, uh, show strength. But actually, it really leaves them at a tremendous disadvantage because they never learn to deal with vulnerability constructively. And so what happens is a lot of men will grow up and they don't know how to deal with vulnerability constructively. And they end up, um, and one of the ways that is a destructive way of dealing with vulnerability is what I call the gladiator defense. So because a person is unable to deal with those feelings or they're denying them. Uh, if they deny them, they don't feel like they need anybody. But if, if they feel them and they don't know what to do with them, often they'll project it onto another, onto another person. So make that person feel vulnerable. It's sort of like the best defense is an offense. You know, make them feel the vulnerability which distracts from you. So one of the dynamics that I saw happening in some of these stories with these women was that uh, there would be, you know, sort of a, a, a parliamentary member uh, in Canada told me this story about how the prime minister attacked her and she had to really stand up for her on her own to, you know, and not crumble under that kind of uh, attack. But that the point being that sometimes women, strong women will get this uh, very um, negative experience of vulnerability. They'll feel really vulnerable. And my question to you is, before you start pulling your hair out and saying, what did I do wrong? Think again, maybe it's not your vulnerability. Maybe someone is projecting it on you as a way of, not, of because they don't know how to deal with it themselves. That's a really interesting point because you mentioned that vulnerability is something that these women, these successful women have in common. But you also mentioned transformation, and you talked about uh, soul crisis, which is something I definitely want us to talk about a little bit more. But in that transformation and in that vulnerability, uh, one of the thoughts that came to mind was there are a lot of women who have had to make their way in what you described earlier as a very male-oriented certainly business environment and where women were not always recognized for their ideas and their contributions. And you talked about Amazon-type Amazon women who had to adopt those characteristics in order to find success in that environment. And are those women who adopt those characteristics losing a part of themselves and that vulnerability? Are those women who reject, for example, helping other women who feel threatened by other women who don't want to be vulnerable? Do you see any of that? Absolutely. You know, that, you know, women really had to learn uh, the man's game when they entered the workforce in, in throngs uh, in the 80s. Uh, and I think there was something good in that, in, in that, um, in learning to play by the boys' rules. I mean, because I think a lot of women developed a strong masculine side. 
But along the way, many of the women that I spoke to who were very successful really lost that balance. They had lost that feminine side, and they had lost that t- compassion and tenderness. And 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 historically, you know, women have been in competition with each other for resources and for men. I mean, it's only just a little over a hundred years ago that here in America, women were allowed to own property. So it's not that long ago. And, you know, and also just have earned the vote as well. It may not, it may seem like we've had it forever, but we haven't. And, and so prior to that, women were always competing against each other. And, and also because uh, positions, powerful positions were also very limited to women. But I think, and so there has been a lot of um, women not being such great supporters of each other. And actually there has, there's a lot of healing for um, a certain generation of women between women because they've been burnt by women and their uh, inability to help each other. Uh, but I really see a big shift happening with the uh, next generation and because right now there is a plethora of organizations that ho- their whole purpose is to support women, um, women supporting women in their work. And that is revolutionary. And that's one of the things that I bumped into was this revolution that women are actually beginning to realize their collective power. Um, because in, for the first time, we are uniting in a way that we have never united before. We have a long way to go, but we still, I think the tipping point is coming closer and closer. And to me, that's really, really exciting. But also to the point about women not supporting each other in the business world, one of the things that I wrote, write about is um, gender schemas. And these are uh, unconscious assumptions we have about men and women that are uh, the cultural assumptions that we have about men and women that are unconscious. This is Virginia Valiant's work. She is a professor at Hunter College. Uh, and in her work, she discovered these schemas. And uh, one of the assumptions that we have this unconscious is that we first assume women are incompetent until proven otherwise. And it's the opposite for men. So if a woman, so right from the get-go, a woman is not seen as a leader. So if you have, as you, a woman, woman have felt that you've um, been held to a higher standard, it's not your imagination. You have been. I call it the Ginger Rogers Fred Astaire syndrome. You know, Ginger has to do everything Fred does except in high heels and backwards. Uh, and so if a woman is successful, it's because she's she's a hard worker or she's lucky. If she fails, it's because uh, she's incompetent. If a man succeeds, it's because he's competent. If he fails, it's because of bad luck. Uh, and often here's an example of the Metis idea, and it's related to, um, to this gender schema. I, I tell the story a lot, which is, you know, that you're at a, in a meeting, a mixed meeting, and the woman brings up an idea. She thinks this is really adding to the conversation, adding a lot of value to what's going on. And she gets nothing. It's just blank stares. Nobody responds to her. And um, and then five minutes later, a guy re- rewords it a little bit, and everybody thinks it's brilliant. And um, women always nod and snicker at this story. And, and one woman who was a researcher in cancer was experienced this for three years, and finally she figured out how to deal with it. When the guy brought up her, her idea as his own, she would say to him, oh, I'm so glad you love my idea. Um, so there's um, – so the, so the gender scheme is, is important to th- remember because um, – because, uh, 
often women will feel like they're not leaders or they don't have anything to contribute because it's not being picked up on, and it's not the case. You do have something to contribute. You are a leader. The thing we need more of is if there are women at the table, don't tell her at the water cooler, wow, I really agree with what you said. Stand with her in that meeting, and next time she'll stand with you. I mean, this is one of the things we women are beginning to learn. I think sports is really helping with that. The other thing about gender scheme is it's very interesting to the point about women not supporting women, is that women also hold this assumption. A woman may think she's competent, but she won't think other women are competent. And so that is another way, another possible explanation why women haven't been so great in helping each other up the ladder. Transformation is something that's a part of the title of your book, and I think it's something that you've mentioned a couple of times as we, since we began the conversation. It's also the process or a way that the process of menopause, the M word, is described by a lot of experts, that transition. And, of course, a lot of people think about it in terms of what's physically happening to the body, but there, of course, are many changes in women themselves, and perhaps that is, for some women, what brings around the soul crisis that you talked about earlier. Have you seen evidence of that? Whether they were going through menopause? I mean, certainly, you know, where you are in the stage of your life has a lot to do with it, but I think, you know, there, I mean, there was... Uh, you know, there was a, a younger woman in her 30s, you know, was experiencing the gladiator defense and was ripping her hair out saying, what am I doing wrong? And and then realizing that, you know, that she had been kind of caught in a, a, a internal conversation of self-deprecation. And so she went through a transformation that wasn't biologically linked. Um, I think, you know, Maybe it gets more exacerbated. You know, the questions might become more intense, but I, it really depends. I think it's really about waking up. I think about women waking up. Yes, we have learned to play the boys' game, but now it's time to change the game for everyone's benefit. And there are a lot of men that want that game to change as well because it hasn't served them all that well either. So in terms of, I wanted to say something about the social transformation and the key vulnerability has in social transformation because when you... Uh, can address it in yourself uh, and allow it and accept it in yourself that you have vulnerable places and they're able to move through those places and transform them, uh, then you're much more uh, compassionate to other people's vulnerabilities. And when people um, are, when you're, and so you can allow more vulnerabilities in the workplace. Uh, so these women as leaders would, you know, they would model vulnerability. They would show, you know, hey, listen, I don't know the answer here, but let's find it out together. You know, I mean, how many people are afraid to say they're wrong or they made a mistake? You know, if you can, you can take a, tr- take a vulnerability like that right here and now in your workplace. And if there's someone made a mistake, don't disparage or diminish, diminish them. Turn it into a learning opportunity, which a lot of these women would do. And then the whole organization learns. You know, and then when you're in a learning organization, you're an adaptive organization. I mean, so many people, so many organizations really don't take the time to pause, to reflect, and to learn from their mistakes. Uh, so that's one thing. Um, the other thing is that, which really surprised me too, is the role vulnerability plays in creating more collaborative work environments. Because collaborative work environments are more uh, equally, the power is more distributed. Well, let me put it this way. So, um, 
people who are connected to their vulnerabilities recognize that they're not perfect, they don't have all the answers, that they need other people, are more willing to collaborate. You know, if you don't deny, if you deny that you have any vulnerabilities, you don't need anybody. You just bark out orders. So, so, um, so vulnerability, being connected to your vulnerability really creates conditions for a more collaborative work environment. And when you're collaborating, you're transforming the meaning of power from power over to power with and for others. You know, we have a pretty dark cloud over this nation economically, and we're going through some really powerful times. Um, but there, even here, there's a silver lining because I think people are more connected to their vulnerability than they've ever been. And that is actually creating uh, an, an environment that is conducive for more collaborations. Now, the thing is, the thing is that when we're collaborating, collaborations are very complex. It's a lot easier to just, uh, you know, bark out orders and obey. To collaborate with others, you really have to um, allow. It, it, uh, collaborating is actually uh, inherently vulnerable because it requires that you be open, that you trust someone, that you self-examine, that you be willing to grow, and that you're willing to find that common ground that you all can share. Uh, and what? And in order to do that, that that really engages all the feminine skills that we have largely disparaged as soft and touchy-feely. For instance, relational intelligence, big picture thinking, intuition, empathy, inclusion, all those things that we have been, have been largely marginalized in the, work, in, in the business world and in politics are really actually very powerful skills right now. So one of my messages to women is, you know, and to men as well, if you're a connector, if you're a bridge builder, you like to bring people together, if you're a bridge builder and facilitate those difficult conversations, if you're an empathizer and can really put yourself in your customer's shoes, all of those qualities are really powerful for creating collaborative uh, environments, to being a transformational and collaborative leader. And to know that there is a revolution hidden in plain sight right now where we are transforming the meaning of power, the potential of transforming the meaning of power from power over to power with, to creating, a, uh, to supplant a domination-based society on one of collaborative one, and that we all can participate and to recognize that power, feminine skills are really powerful in this transformation and that you, with your feminine skills, are a leader in this transformation. And that's not to deny all the masculine things. It's just that the masculine has been so over, uh, out of balance in our world that bring, there has to be almost like a swing of the pendulum that the feminine skills have to come and bring the two into balance uh, again. How would you define success? You've talked about these women being successful, women finding success. How would you define success in this context? Well, I think that this is... Um, I call it 4C, <laughs> uh, like foreseeing the future, but actually it's 4 in the letter C. You know, f the first C is, um, you know, connect to your passion. You know, take the time. What is it you really care about? Where, what are you drawn to? Even if you can't do it as a paying job, don't do it in some small way that you can, because that's your really important contribution to the world, and we need your contribution. So the first is connect to your passion. The other is uh, collective. Recognize that feminine power is different. It is collective power. It's women joining together. Find your sisters out there and, and work together 
to uh, realize your collective power. This is another interesting thing uh, that I bumped into is that about collective intelligence. Now, you know, the problems in the world are really um, very complex. It's more than one person can answer the problems. And so they've been doing some research on collective intelligence. And, and they realized, they discovered that, you know, collective intelligence was never, uh, didn't depend on the smartest person in the group, nor was it uh, the average intelligence of everyone in the group. Uh, in fact, uh, collective intelligence is something pretty magical. It's an emergent property that comes out of the interactions in that group. It's something greater than the sum of its parts. But they did find one predictor for improving collective intelligence, and that was to make sure that half the people at that table are women. And the reason is because women have... Um, they're, they're sensitive to social cues. They're uh, sensitive to taking turns, all these things that help facilitate uh, collective intelligence. In that sense, you know, we're talking again about feminine skills. Feminine skills are very powerful for facilitating uh, collective intelligence. So when I talk about the second C, collective power and collective intelligence, um, realize that those feminine skills are very powerful in, those two, in, in, in actualizing those two things. The third is collaboration. As we talked earlier, women haven't been great in collaborating with each other, I think, or covering each other's backs. I think this new generation of women who have been um, involved in team sports big time uh, have a better sense of how to cover each other's back. Uh, but collabor collaborating with women is revolutionary right now, and that is for us to see that by joining together, we become much more competitive and have much more power to start to shape the world and address those things that are really important to us and that are, are good for everyone. You know, like healthcare, making, ch there's no hungry children in the world. Uh, you know, I think we can all agree with that. Um, and, the, and the fourth one is community. The importance of, um, you know, none of these women, these were strong women, but none of these women did, did their work alone. They had a really strong network and community that were with them and behind them. And so that's also part of the different definition of power. I mean, we think of masculine power as, you know, the lone ranger. This is, and strength as being the lone ranger. Really, the whole word strong um, is really different in this context. It's not standing alone. It's standing with others and finding others who stand with you. So the definition of success, just to make sure that I'm following. Oh, I'm, I'm, yeah, good. You well, said that had four components. Would you go over those again? Okay. If success, I'm saying, you, you, I think you'll feel successful. You'll become successful. If first, if you connect to your passion, if you begin to realize the collective power and collective intelligence is a collective thing, not an individual thing, that uh, collaborating with other women is a way for you to become more successful because there's, this is a whole new terrain that we're going into. And then the last is um, built, uh, being, being successful means having a strong community of support that you don't think you have to do this alone. Successful women don't do this alone. How is collaboration with others different from a strong community of support? Well, collaboration with others is, um, I'm still developing these ideas, but the collaboration really is a more uh, skills of, you know, Finding a shared goal and uh, working together as a in a partnership of some sort. The community is larger than that partnership. 
It's re- it's recognizing that um, you might not be collaborating with them, but they can be part of your community. And so, um, for instance, you know, I have women who um, I'm not collaborating with them, but they're starting Iron Butterfly Circles, uh, where they use the book as a kind of a springboard for this new conversation in the workplace and outside of the workplace. And so that's a community that's arising of women coming on the same page about ideas, about what's important and where we want to take action. And that is a perfect segue to go back to something that you mentioned early on. You said that you are traveling around the country and that you want to use your travels and your meeting with people around the country as a springboard for conversation. What is your goal? You, you've also talked about a revolution several times. What is it that you have in mind? What are you trying to accomplish? Well, you know, you know, when I finished this book, I thought, okay, I'll, now I'll write this next book that I had in mind. But it was almost like my book said, no, you're not going anywhere. Your job is to be the bell ringer. You heard this collective voice. Now you've got to bring it out into the world. And I think that one of the things is that I talk about a revolution hidden in plain sight, and I'm trying to make it visible, that th- we are going through a powerful time of transformation that from power over to power with, from domination to collaboration, and that we can all participate in that, and I'm trying to make that conscious. The other thing is, um, is actually changing uh, the conversation about feminine skills, that we have thought of them as soft and touchy-feely, not powerful, but in fact, uh, they are very powerful because they are the very skills we need for uh, facilitating collective intelligence and for uh, creating true collaborations. Uh, the other thing is, um, is for people who are doing this work already often don't realize that there are other people doing this kind of work. And so my voice is really about validating, saying, saying if you're doing this, know that you are a leader. This is you are leading into the future. Uh, and to give their support and give their support to give I'm giving their support and validating them. I can't tell you how many times people have come up to me and said, you know, you have said what's in my heart and mind. So I think a big part of my job has been to validate um, and also, you know, and create an opportunity for women to gather together, which is the Iron Butterfly Circles, and share their wisdom to support each other in, in their leadership. You know, and there's also, you know, to bring this into the workplace um, where women uh, can begin to uh, fine-tune their feminine skills and, and bring them to, uh, to their work, which will, I think, really improve the bottom line in most organizations. How are you funding this? Or many of our <laughs> listeners, of course, are business women, and yeah. so they're thinking, okay, well, so what's the bottom line here? How do you do that? Are you funding this yourself? Do you have some sort of grant funding? How do you make this happen from a financial <laughs> perspective? I know it's a tough question. I'll tell you. Well, you know, I'll tell you. This project has been a labor of love. I've done a lot of financial sacrifice for this, um, and you know, I feel like I've. You know, and my hope is to be, you know, I'm I'm going out there and I'm speaking. I'm hoping, you know, to increase my speaking rates so I can actually sustain this message. Uh, And also, I, you know, I guess I'm starting to do retreats uh, uh, sort of uh, for women uh, in in different kind of venues. So it's a a kind of evolving, uh, uh, evolving journey here uh, where 
actually getting getting well paid for this work is part of my mission too because so much of the work that women do is not paid for it is it contributes enormously to the economy and it's not recognized and i think women i think nurses should be paid a lot i think people who uh a daycare center who raise our children i mean we're talking about the major architecture in their mind we're not talking about interior decorating uh, should be paid really well. I mean, I think there has to be a redistribution of power uh, of the money as well. And I think that's part of this transformation is really these feminine skills that have been taken for granted and this uh, and this message uh, that um, benefits everybody. I think um, should I think it should should be at least paid as much as a plumber. <laughs> is this a feminist message? Would you say, Brute? A feminist message, yes. It's feminist in that every man and woman deserves to pursue their passion. It's, uh, you know, the, uh, that's another thing that I'm trying to do is restore the meaning of that word. It has been usurped into uh, meaning man-hating or, you know, uh, hairy legs or bra burning. That was a small faction of what the feminist movement was about. It was about equal opportunity for everyone. And I think now that we're re- and now I think part of that feminist message is to um, is to stand together with men. Uh, it's a, an inclusive message. I mean, when men, for the past five thousand years, men have really excluded women from the tables of power. I mean, yes, women have made a lot of progress, but if you look at the Fortune 500, okay, at, at the get-go, there's like 46 percent are women in Fortune 500 companies. Then you go into the executives, it's 13, and the board, it's 14, and CEOs, it's 2%. So we have a long way to go when it comes to uh, being at the power table. And I think that is our mission right now, is to be included at the power table, to be making some, making some of those decisions that affect all of us. And the thing is, when women come to power, they are not going to exclude men. They're going to include men. That is the difference. And that's, again, the transformation of power. It's not power over, but power with and for others. So in that sense, yes, this is a feminist movement that benefits both men and women. You talking about the movement and how it's changing lives. You've talked about the future and leadership. Of course, we have new generations that are on the edge that are starting to find themselves. And they have different ways of seeing the world. They have different experiences. Um, I was just reading a very interesting article about millennial leaders, young leaders, and their attitudes and how they're different from the attitudes of their parents. One of the things that, of course, is very different today is technology and how people interact. And you mentioned that one of the characteristics that makes this women's or this femininity so important is relationships. Have you thought about how this new way of seeing the world and this new way of communicating the, the in, incoming generations, I'm going to call them, have is related to all these concepts? Yeah, you know, it, it's, it's a very complex question. You know, um, I think the generation is much more connected with each other, which is a really positive thing. Uh, and, you know, certainly, um, it, it, but it's, but there are also lots of studies that we're more connected to each other than we've ever been. And yet when you're asked uh, how many people are, are 
how many best friends that you have that you can actually turn to in trouble has decreased to it, and in the past five years I think it's gone from five to two or one and so the level of intimacy I think there is a, is something to be uh, afraid of because there's always this um, inherent distance it's a paradox that the technology produces there's at once connection and distance at the same time because you don't have that sort of same face to face I mean it's you know I, I see it in my fr- my friends my you know my friends uh, kids who are in college just went off to college um you know, don't call me, mom, just text me. <laughs> so we don't even have, you know, the voice isn't even involved anymore, do you know? So um, I think I think, I think think this generation, I feel a lot of hope for them. I think that they have, um, they really get the collaboration part of it, that they, that they are much more um, willing to work together. Um, and and they do know about the, the importance of being connected, um, but we really we have all this technology, and we really still don't really know where it's taking us. And I think that we need to every so often take a pause and saying, "What am I doing, and why am I doing this?" You've mentioned that there are iron butterfly circles that are getting together in different parts of the country and that you're going to be traveling or you're already traveling across the country. For those of our listeners who want to learn more about these concepts and maybe participate or attend one of the meetings, what's the best way for them to connect with you? Uh, the best way to connect to me is on my website, which is www.ironbutterflies.com. Please go to my Facebook page and, and join, join in and also t- Twitter. And that's Iron Butterflies as well, both both Twitter and Facebook. Um, I, if you want to start start your own circle, I mean, I often like to try to initiate it for the group, but it, I'm still figuring out the finances on that myself. Um, but if I'm very happy to talk to anyone who wants to start a circle, and and if they um, and I can tell you about some circles that are are around. So, yeah, go to my website. So ironbutterflies.com, and you're also on Facebook and on Twitter. Look for Iron Butterflies on both of those. That's right. And remember, it's plural because feminine power is a collective power. What suggestions, Berute, what tips would you share with our listeners that they can take back to their offices, to their personal lives, to whatever projects they're working on, and apply in a practical way? What's Say three to five tips would you share with them? Well, you know, I, I think I've already talked about, you know, being conscious of gender schemas and being the four C's, uh, re- thinking about those ideas. Uh, also going back and realizing that those feminine skills are powerful and, you know, embrace them and recognize yourself as a leader. Uh, all of those things are really important. I'll give you three small um, pra- little examples of how you can transform uh, vulnerability into a strength into the workplace. I've already mentioned one, which is, um, you know, how you deal with mistakes in the workplace is very important. It says a lot about your leadership. And if you can allow, address, and accept mistakes and turn them into learning experiences for everyone, then now you've transformed a vulnerability such as a mistake to a strength, which is something a learning experience. Another uh, transformation that's readily at your fingertips is um, 
is people are stressed at work. Most companies are not hiring many people, so people are doing more than one job. Uh, often, uh, or people are not working and they're stressed that way. Um, one way to uh, transform a, 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 a vulnerability such as stress in an organization um, is to take the time to appreciate people. Now, people, companies spend a ton of money trying to figure out how to motivate how to mo- motivate employees. And there was an IT poll of, uh, uh, that was taken, and the number one motivator that they discovered among IT people was personal thanks. Second was written thanks, and third was public thanks. So, you know, it doesn't even cost a dime, but it does cost that you care. You care enough to notice what people are doing. You care enough to take the time to acknowledge what they're doing, and you care enough to make this a daily practice. I mean, having one uh, appreciation day once a year isn't going to make it. So that's one, that's another, transforming vulnerabilities, uh, the vulnerability of stress into, um, into uh, appreciation. And the other is that um, as a leader, um, you know, there is this Lone Ranger model, and often part of leadership is associated with isolation. Uh, And if you as a leader can humble yourself and say that you need your people, uh, they will will be there for you. Uh, Because leaders don't, people need leaders, but leaders need people. And to acknowledge that mutual need releases something quite amazing uh, because now everybody's engaged in solving that problem. So there's a, there's a vulnerability of feeling isolated that can tr- transform into a collective effort that, uh, that benefits everyone. So there's three things that I think are immediately at your fingertips for transforming vulnerabilities. But, I, you know, if you, I'd love to hear from any of you, other examples of transforming vulnerabilities into strengths that you, you've done. So to summarize your three tips that, that they can take away, turn mistakes around in a positive way in your working environment as the first one. Number two, take the time to appreciate those around you, either in person, in written, or in a public way. And number three, acknowledge that you need others and allow yourself to be vulnerable. Is that right? That's right. And model it and show that, you, you know, you can be vulnerable without, if you're in a position of power, model it, that you uh, that show that you can be vulnerable without being disparaged or dismissed or diminished. Uh, and that, in fact... If you're in a position of power, look at those feminine skills that are, be, that are at play in your workplace and let's start changing the reward system. Let's start changing uh, who we reward, not the you know, superstars, but let's look at the people who are connecting people together, the people who are doing the bridge building, people are the empathizers, the includers. So let's start rewarding them for those particular skills that they bring to the workplace because that's really very um, Powerful skills, because in complex systems, one of the things that makes an organization adaptable is the strength of their connections. And these are very strong, positive connections people are creating. Thank you, Barute, for joining us from Hancock, New Hampshire. (laughs) Thank you for having me, Elena. And to our audience, thank you for listening to Barute Regine, EDD, who is the author of Iron Butterflies, Women Transforming Themselves and the World, who discussed success for women today and her book. 
Please share your suggestions, questions, and ideas by leaving a comment on the HispanicNPR.com website. If you or someone you know would like to be on the show, you can email me directly at editor at HispanicNPR.com. That's editor at HispanicNPR.com.